When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times, and this is View From My Sofa, the podcast where every week I sit down with the stars of TV to talk about all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? Expect fascinating insights into my celebrity guests' TV habits. What shows do they binge? What do they snack on? What do they loathe? And who really controls the remote on their sofa? This week's guest is the actor, screenwriter, scriptwriter, playwright, author, raconteur and the latest legend to be inducted into the Radio Times Hall of Fame. It's the one and only Stephen Fry. In this episode, Stephen tells me about his lifelong love affair with TV. Why, of all the programmes he has made in more than 40 years in television, his BBC documentary Exploring Bipolar Disorder is the show he's most proud of. How he wishes shows like Heartstopper and It's a Sin were around when he was younger, and how meeting Hugh Laurie was like love at first sight. Hello, Stephen Fry. Welcome to View From My Sofa. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Talk me through what is the view from your sofa? What's your living room set up like? Well, I'm quite fortunate because I've got a lot of space here where I am in uh, Los Angeles at the moment where I have a place. And uh, so it's a screen. It's uh, some kind of weird audio, um, audiovisual thing that got sorted for me by an expert and of course what happens is they then go out of business and you can never be in touch with them again so when anything goes wrong I'm in real trouble but I've got a tiny cupboard that has a huge rack in it and it seems to control everything but basically I do have a remote control and if I press tv the the projector screen comes down the projector goes on and with any luck I have available the usual things that people have available these days, the streaming entities, and in America, the, uh, this kind of you know multiplicity of channels, all of which show things that are absolutely unwatchable. What have you been watching recently on telly and enjoying? Um, let me see. Oh, I tell you a thing I enjoyed: uh, Karen Piri, which is a detective show which is still running and um, i've only seen the first two episodes uh it's based on a val mcdermid book called 
Distant Echo, I think. Um, and the series is called Karen Perry. I love detective programs. Absolutely adore them. Um, and so when they're good, I'm, that's all I watch, essentially. That, old Columbo's, uh, sport and films. And if I'm in America, Jeopardy. That's the thing I love best, which is a quiz show, as I'm sure you know. It's been going for 425 years and is fabulous. I find that really interesting because a while ago I listened to something and you said that you find comedy more moving than tragedy. So that surprises me that you're kind of drawn to the thriller and detective dramas. Yes, um, I think that's true of comedy, generally speaking. Um, but the detective things aren't tragedies exactly. They, in a sense, when I talk about comedy, I do so in the ridiculously formal way. I really mean the, the construction of something where everything's all right at the end is a lot more moving to me than something where people die at the end. So I'm talking in Shakespearean terms, really, where comedies aren't necessarily absolutely a hoot from start to finish. They could be lyrical and melancholic and tense. They could even think they're tragedies and then everything's all right at the end. And that's what's beautiful about detective uh, fiction, I think. It's, uh, it's a microcosm of our tangled world, which supposes the possibility that it can be untangled by a mixture of all the best human qualities, instinct, impulse, and of course, ratiocination, logic, thinking, uh, calculation, observation, uh, all the qualities that make humans remarkable, because that covers our scientific outlook on life, the fact that we experiment, we test, we are vindicated by the results of the test, but also it allows for instinct, impulse, the, the famous hunch that all great detectives have, a feel for people, uh, all those qualities. <clears throat> and, and that's why I think that, de that detective fiction is the longest lasting and always will be genre, really, on television, because it's so utterly each time uh, involves us in the business of humanity and provides us with a totally unlikely harmonious ending where, <laughs> you know, there's a famous line of in Oscar Wilde's masterpiece, The Importance of Being Earnest, where um, uh, Sicily is sitting with her, her governess, her, her tutor, uh, Miss Prism, and the conversation goes to... Uh, her diary and novels. And, and Miss um, Prism says at some point, do not speak slightingly of the three-volume novel. Sicily, I, in earlier days, earlier, happier days, I wrote one myself, she says. And Sicily uh, uh, says, did, did, did it end happily? And Miss Prism says the great line, the good ended happily, the bad ended unhappily. That is what fiction means. Which is, <laughs> which is brilliant because it's actually saying it is fictional to suggest that the good end happily and the bad end unhappily. In other words, it's a lie. Um, and fiction is the great lie that suggests that the wicked get punished and the good get rewarded. Um, and as we know from our politics and general life, sadly, that isn't the case. Many tyrants die, are uh, happy or at least peaceful, you know, deathbed uh, uh, passing, whereas uh, a lot of good and decent people uh, are killed or, you know, uh, uh, 
are unfortunate. So we need this. It's our modern equivalent of, of fairy tales um, and, and fables. So you like a happy ending, but is there anything that if it comes on TV, you have to turn off? You just loathe it? Oh, God, yes, dancing. Anything to do with dancing. <laughs> Absolutely cannot bear it. I know people think I'm being snobbish or looking down on it. I'm absolutely not. Most of my friends are very fond of the Strictly program. They they really enjoy it, and they're people I love and respect. But I cannot look at it because there's a quality that we never discuss, and I think it's one of the most important human emotions, if it is an emotion or reactions or affects or whatever you might call it, um, and that is embarrassment. If I watch even a frame or two of that program, I just, literally, I get tears springing to my eyes and I have to look away because I'm embarrassed. Um, I just, I just the spangles and the moving around and the swirling and the, the full smiles and things. And I, I know this is wrong of me, but that most people adore it and think it's a positive thing and it's full of good nature and effort and all the rest of it. But for me, it is everything I most... Oh, I shudder at the thought of it. It also reminds me of the possibility that, you know, in, in a horrible world where I would wake up and be forced to take part in something like that. And it takes me back to school where I'm asked to be in the gym and climb a rope or join a team or do something physical or even the very early kindergarten music and movement things where you have to sit cross-legged and then you spring up and, and have to pretend it's windy or you're a tree <coughs> or something. All of those things absolutely horrify me. As I say, deeply embarrassed. And I think it goes back to an embarrassment with my own body, the fact that I always felt so inadequate. I can't sit cross-legged, for example. I literally can't sit tailor fashion. My knees just go straight up vertically. I can't get them even to vaguely to... I know you laugh because it's funny, but it, it, all my life it's embarrassed me that I can't do any of these things. Never been able to climb a rope. I can't dive into a pool. I'm physically very inept. I guess dyspraxic is a word. Um, certainly I was, you know, unco-unco used to be shouted at me, short for uncoordinated. So anything involving these physical displays, I suppose touches a nerve in me like... Um, tin foil on a filling in your mouth, you know, just like an electric shock. It, it, so I only have to see a frame or two of that dancing program to be made unhappy. I suppose that's the point. So I, I tried to explain this once on The One Show. <laughs> that's a, that, that's a funny, funny television program. And, and I got quite a lot of tweets afterwards, from people who were thinking I was sneering and looking down at uh, Strictly. And, and it's absolutely not what I mean. I just can't watch it. That's my problem. And I, I'm quite happy not to. And on the other side of things, I don't really watch these many um, of these reality programs. The ones with skill, I do like. So, for example, uh, The Great Pottery Throwdown. I, I enjoy watching that. from Not religiously, but if it's on, I'll think, oh, I'll watch them throwing a pot because um, that's always interesting. And they're just so talented, you know. Mm. Uh, and the bakery thing also. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but I don't get completely sort of soap operally uh, tied into it and so that I don't start calling the contestants by their first names as if they're friends, which is a yeah. bit mumsy. There, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of mumsiness about these things. And heavens, mums have their place in the world. They are the giants of the world. They are really more important than any other class of person. So again, I'm not sneering when I say mumsy. I just mean it isn't necessarily for me so much. 
So you live with your husband, Elliot, mm-hmm. and I wondered who controls the remote in your household? Do you have similar viewing tastes? Well, he likes gaming, which I don't really do, but I can quite happily watch him doing, you know, Red Dead Redemption or there's a new one called Cat, which is, I don't know if it's called Cat, but it involves a cat prowling at night. On, and it's so beautiful. It's like a work of art. So I just watch him playing that for a while, which is more interesting than most of the programs. Um, he knows that I have to watch a lot of sport and he's very good natured about it and has sort of absorbed, you know. So I'll be watching um, the cricket and he'll go, Oh, why isn't Johnny Bairstow playing? And I'll say, Oh, he's injured or something. And so I think, Wow. Because, you know, a year ago he would have said, Why is it? Oh, look, there's Ron Weasley. He was. <laughs> Calls Johnny Bairstow Ron Weasley because he does. He's ginger haired and looks a bit like a Weasley, I suppose. Um, and, but he gets to know now. He know he can recognise Joe Root and Ben Stokes. Oh, he's the one with the sweat stain on his cap. Yes. <laughs> he has a very visual imagination, so he never. It's never about their cricket. It's always about their appearance. But that's. that's I have to confess, cool. I'm a similar viewer when it comes to sport. And you why start not? to notice the people. <laughs> exactly. And it's sport is shared viewing. So it's lovely exactly. just to have someone there. Yeah. Even if and all I've their even, chiming in is that. <laughs> I've even got him watching golf because I love watching golf. And um, uh, I know a lot of people groan at <laughs> golf, you know, not to everybody's taste. But the great thing is um, when you're watching sport, it's never happened before. I mean, the circumstances can be vaguely similar, mm. but no one knows what the result is going to be. Uh, and that's. That's quite a that's quite an important feature I find in life to to watch something that has an open end. You know, you just you, you can't know. And I, when I'm in America, I, I watch uh, baseball as well. In fact, I, uh, Elliot, my husband, and I have been to a couple of Dodgers games um, here in Los Angeles, and and it's really yeah, fun to watch. And I was watching yeah. the other night when Aaron Judge got his 62nd homer, uh, an absolute uh, a record. He beat the Babe Ruth and um, uh, uh, Maris re- uh, record, uh, Mantle, well, no, Roger Maris, wasn't it, record. Um, uh, so it's kind of exciting moments like that. Uh, and, of course, you know, they share the football or soccer, as they call it over here. They show that now pretty regularly. Uh, so sport. Is yeah. Good one. Um, quizzes. Uh, I like the, the Monday evening quiz. Uh, uh, what do you call it? A, a sort of... Um, Thread is that the word for it uh, that that goes on BBC Two when you have Mastermind and mm. uh, Only Connect and University Challenge. You have so many um, areas of expertise. If you were on the show as a guest, what would what would your specialist topic be? Well, I did do it actually. As a, you know, what, what the, they call it, celebrity masterminds, and I did that years ago. And um, I chose Sherlock Holmes actually uh, because I just—it was one of my passions when I was young. And things you know when you're young stay with you forever. Mm-hmm. So you just—I didn't have to revise. Um, I did okay. I mean, I, I won the program and got a glass bowl for what it's Oh, very exciting. <laughs> um, so that was nice. And as a student, I was on University Challenge, which was thrilling in the Bamba Gascoigne days. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I have to confess, I do enjoy quizzes. And as I said, when I'm in America, Jeopardy is an, is an absolute must, seven every evening. 
absolute primetime American TV. It's often the most popular program in all of America, and its standard is extraordinarily high. You know, when we... We love to think Americans are stupid and, you know, <laughs> that they, yes, it's true that if you stop an American in the street and ask them to point to Denmark on a map, they're likely not to know where it is. But that's true of a lot of Britons. And um, there are plenty of Americans to make up for that, uh, you know, easy to sneer at ignorance of the world and you've only got to watch uh, jeopardy to see that the standard of questioning is very very high uh, and very detailed you know whether it's in history or geography politics uh, literature art opera i mean all kinds of things you don't get on on a you know a sort of a popular british quiz you get them mm. in specialist rounds in mastermind and things but even the mastermind general knowledge questions these days are pretty straightforward they're not exactly uh, challenging um, in the way that perhaps university challenge questions still are. Uh, yes, very challenging. So, and there are, so I hope, my secret hope is that Jeopardy will come to Britain. There'll be a version in Britain. Yeah, I think that would be great. Let's travel back in time now and return to your childhood. So you grew mm. up in a village in Norfolk with your two siblings. What were you like as a child? Um, I think I would probably, if I'd been born later, have been diagnosed as suffering from attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. I was very restless, um, ill-behaved Ill um, at, at every school. My reports were terrible. I was always accused of being a distraction and of... Uh, being loud and noisy and unfocused. Um, but uh, I think people always recognised that I was quite advanced when it came to reading and writing and had a very good memory, so I never had to work very hard uh, to pass exams, and that gave me a lot of spare time. That sounds very arrogant, but it, 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 isn't. it didn't make me happy. It didn't make me – I wasn't emotionally developed, I don't think, particularly. I just could remember stuff and reproduce it, not in a – essentially intelligent way either as my father's father always said i was simply a pasticheur i i just i just you know parodied and parroted uh what i read and saw without really understanding it but knowing it was impressive so that was the sort of child i was and of course my father was very disturbed by the fact that i didn't i didn't do the kind of things he did as a child like build radio sets and outboard motors for, you know, he was very physically amazing. He'd make anything and uh, and he was always outside. And I was always wanting to watch television. And we had one of those tiny screen televisions. I mean, really, um, really small, about the size of the sort of round woofer on a speaker, uh, you know, the kind of speaker you'd have on, the, on your table, not, not a great big cabinet one. And there was a black and white picture. Uh, and there was one channel, BBC One, when, when I was six or seven. Um, and it was only taken out for special occasions, like um, the funeral of Winston Churchill, I remember very well, 1964 or five, that would have been. And then the World Cup the next year, 66, where England won. A, f a few royal weddings and that sort of thing. Uh, 
some Americans trotted about on the moon. We definitely watched that. Um, uh, so those are the things I was allowed to watch. That meant television took on the quality of sweets. It was forbidden candy. And therefore, I wanted it all the more. Verbotene Früchte, as the Germans say, forbidden fruit, uh, tastes the sweetest, as we know. So television, I mean, everyone thinks of themselves as part of a sort of a generation that sees enormous change. But I was born in 1957, and it was the same year as sugar puffs were introduced. And and cereals and sweets and television advertising for children for the first time as ITV existed. And things began to point towards my generation. So I grew up uh, with the growth of programs like Blue Peter and then morphing into Top of the Pops. Uh, uh, and this was the world we stepped into. This was the water we swam in. And it was made for us and... We loved it, and it thrilled us more than I can say. So when I was young, obviously the early children's television, but the biggest moment I remember was when I was seven, we moved from Buckinghamshire to Norfolk. That's where we moved into this big house. And all our furniture came and fitted in, you know, yeah, in so many rooms, and it was there was one big room where the television was at the end. My father shoved it in there and plugged it in and the week before in Buckinghamshire we had seen the first ever episode of Doctor Who with this old man and his granddaughter and a police box that could travel in time and we were absolutely blown away by it so we then moved to Norfolk and it was the next Saturday or whatever the day of the week it was and we turned on the television and it didn't work a, a valve had blown and my father was too busy to bother mending it. He said, I'll mend it. I'll mend it tomorrow. And we said, but, 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 but. He said, it would be ridiculous. It's just a television program. And I think for the next 20-odd years, there was a little gap in my heart, which was could only be filled by watching that second episode, which I managed to do when eventually they all came out in video and we lived in a different age. But so that kind of thing was very important. And I loved Blue Peter. I'm afraid I was the kind of nerdy boy who rather than taking the Eagle comic or Beano, I had look and learn. And, and, and Blue Peter was the television equivalent. It was, and I, I got a silver Blue Peter badge in the end because uh, I had I, I got th two ordinary ones and a competition winner's badge. And when they sent me the competition winner's badge, they said, our records show that you are a very keen Blue Peter watcher and you've already won two badges. That entitles you to this silver one. So I had a silver one. Oh, oh yeah. I used to, you know, I used to pester them. I mean, didn't, didn't get a, uh, a, I, mean, I remember like I found a skull and sent, sent that in. It was a, I couldn't work out what sort of animal it was. It was too big to be a rat or a mouse or anything. Um, and I sent it in. And, <laughs> and the, there's a man called Dangerfield, I think his name was, who was the, the wildlife expert who'd come on to Blue Peter occasionally. And uh, Christopher Trace, who was one of the very early, uh, you know, 
very first male presenters, he with Valerie Singleton, even before John Noakes this was, and he gave it to Mr. Dangerfield, who looked at it and said, uh, well, this young man who sent it in from Norfolk, I believe, it said, uh, uh, I can see that he's cleaned it, yes, uh, with a toothbrush. I can smell the toothpaste. It's very <laughs> nice to have cleaned it, but it isn't always a good idea. You can brush away useful things. Uh, anyway, I can tell him that this is the skull of a badger. So <laughs> that was very thrilling. It was very much the golden age of, of TV, wasn't it? And and like you say, the BBC kind of reigned. And when you were watching all these things, did you have kind of any yearning desire or um some kind of aspiration forming in your in your mind maybe to kind of pursue this and to one day end up on the TV? It's such an interesting question. I don't know what it is that makes some children look at a stage when they go to a pantomime or look at the television and picture themselves inside that world, you know, piercing the membrane that separates the audience from the performer and becoming a performer. It's such an unlikely thing. When you're young, you think of performers as being distant, impossible creatures. But I did, I did think, I wonder if I can be on that side. I remember, in fact, going to pantomimes with my brother, who was a little bit older than me, and when Buttons would say, now, would any girl or boy like to come up on stage and join me? Um, my brother would dive down behind, under the chairs, you know, making noises <laughs> like a piece of dust so that he wouldn't get noticed. And I would spring up with my arms up so... <laughs> tight that my, you know, underarm membrane was in danger of ripping, going, me, me, me. And we were both children of the same parents. We both shared the DNA of our mother and father, but I was born wanting to show off and be on that side, to be on the stage. So, yes, um, as I got older and, you know, started to watch evening programs uh, and if very late was allowed to watch Parkinson. And I would see Fred Astaire and Peter Sellers and people like that being interviewed. And I tried to imagine meeting them. I tried to imagine what it was like to be like them. And yes, I was cheap enough to say, suppose I was famous, you know, that silly F word. Uh, wouldn't that be fantastic? And I would fantasize about being famous. But also I liked the idea of, of um, uh, performing, of of, of of people looking at me and, and amusing them. I mean, so many really important, well, to me, important things happened watching that television, partly because it was so forbidden. The one I've spoken about before, which was really, was, well, I don't know, about 10 or 11, and it was a rainy day. Now, my father worked from home, as we say now, that's to say he was an inventor, a physicist, and he had a laboratory. There was a converted stable block over the way. We called it over the way, and that's where he worked when he was doing stuff. Otherwise, he was in the house in his study doing calculations and things and um, but when he went over the way we felt free because he was quite a scary man he was like Sherlock Holmes tall and thin with a smoked a pipe all the time and he could give you withering glances and he hated me watching television but anyway he was over the way it was a rainy day nothing to do outside turn the television on there was a film it had been on obviously for five or six minutes not much longer and I became fascinated by it I couldn't understand what it was what it, it, it was set in some remote, was it remote past? It wasn't Shakespeare, I knew that. People spoke in a way that I had never heard before, and it absolutely entranced me. I remember a young man saying to a young woman, 
I hope I will not in any way offend you if I say quite openly and frankly that you seem to me to be in every way the visible personification of absolute perfection. And I felt like I'd been hit by a ton of bricks. I didn't think that language, that thing we used to say, pass the butter and I hate you and shut up and, you know, all those ordinary things. Language could be like music. It could seduce and beguile and amuse just by the pattern of its and its phrasing, its rhythm. It's, and anyway, when it was over, I rushed to my mother and said, I hope you won't be offended if I say quite openly and frankly that you seem to me to be the visible personification of absolute perfection. And she said, what are you talking about? Anyway, she, I explained. and. Um, she said, oh, that's the importance of being earnest by Oscar Wilde. And I had to know more. They didn't have a copy of it in the house. So following Thursday, we had this mobile library that came every other Thursday, big van, right? Because we were right in the middle of the country. So it would go out down the lanes. And if you stood at a conjunction of two lanes uh, and waved, it would stop. Uh, and so that's what I did that Sunday. And I climbed on and asked the lady who was the librarian inside if she had any Oscar Wilde play called Importance of Being Earnest. And she gave me the four comedies, you know, the uh, ideal husband, a woman of no importance, uh, Lady Lady Windermere's fan and, uh, the, and the importance. And um, I went home and read it and reread it and reread it and reread it. And then a couple of weeks later, asked if they had any more she gave me the complete works, and I read as much of that as I could understand, some of it being beyond me, of course, some of the philosophical essays. Um, and then I went back and asked for more, and she said, well, you've got the complete works. There isn't any more, my darling. Um, and then I saw there was a book which said The Trials of Oscar Wilde. So I, I got that, and then I learned all about him. And that changed me forever because I realized that he had a nature that was similar to mine. And, and, and I came out to myself, as it were, um, which was both good and bad. But that all came from just watching that on television. It's a bit of a, a stretch from talking about my TV habits. But it just shows how in those days television was a, a truly unique channel into all kinds of worlds that you could never otherwise uh, imagine. And there were no other distractions from yeah. that. It was called, as you probably know, perhaps retrospectively called the nation's fireplace, uh, which is a subtler remark than I think people might imagine. Our ancestors, from the moment we became modern homo sapiens, uh, i.e. we harnessed fire and tools, um, we, we, we used fire to protect us from wild animals and to cook our food, of course, and to keep us warm. Uh, and then when we developed language 50 or 60,000 years ago only, we would tell stories to each other around that fire. And, and in our language, the languages we've inherited from the Greeks and Romans and the Anglo-Saxons, we have words like hearth. <clears throat> and hearth, the Anglo-Saxon word for the fireplace, is cognate with, i.e. it's a similar root and meaning in a sense, to the word heart. It, we've always understood mm. that the hearth is the very center of the human family. It's where we sit around and, and with flickering light, we exchange stories and we, the myths were created. Um, and we kept that fireplace, that hearth. Uh, cardia in Greek is similar. It can mean hearth or heart as in cardiac. And the Latin for hearth is focus. 
So literally, we've taken the Latin word for hearth and, and use it as a metaphor for anything that we concentrate on, focus. Um, mm. and, and right up through television, we had this hearth, this one flickering thing in our room. The family would gather around it and stories would come out of it. And the whole nation would watch these things simultaneously. So the next day in the school playground, you could swap and tell stories about what you, you'd all shared the same experience around the hearth. But only very, very recently, the last generation and a half of humans, that hearth has been taken away. People don't eat together around the table. So mm. Susan's in that room watching Netflix. She's watching Bridgerton, and she's ordered this from Deliveroo, and her brother we won't ask what he's watching in his room and he's ordered a pizza <laughs> and daddy and mummy are watching something else in in another room the half yeah. has been fragmented and everything in that sense is fragmented there isn't that unity and it's typical of old people to moan about how things have changed but i think it is a real change and television is a big reflection mm. of that that the fact that it no longer is this common source so much there is still a, a you know, there's still the water cooler moment in television, but it's nothing like what it was when there was less to choose from, of course. Yeah. I want to talk to you about Oscar Wilde because you then went on to play him in the film, Wilde. I wondered if, you know, if we look at some of your recent television appearances, so you were in It's a Sin on Channel 4, which obviously unflinchingly exposed the impact of the AIDS epidemic. You appeared in voice, although not in flesh, in Heartstopper, the Netflix LGBT drama, a coming-of-age drama. I wonder how much do you, during your career has representation and the stories that we see changed? And, you know, for you, Oscar Wilde's story had a massive impact on you. And how much do you think now people can see themselves on television in a way that perhaps wasn't done before? It's a very good question that. Uh, uh, there's the personal side of it and the general side. I mean, the personal side is there has always been a peculiar quirk in me, which has been an anxiety to disclose myself, shall we say, that um, I've written, what, three autobiographies uh, in, in which I have disclosed a lot of the weirdness of my childhood and the mistakes I've made going to prison and, you know, drug taking, all kinds of ter terrible behaviours. Uh, it also, it was true that more or less the first proper opportunity I got, I disclosed my sexuality. I came out when I, you know, I mean, I did to my parents and to my friends when I was 16, 17, 18, whatever. But once I was out in the world and suddenly was beginning to get noticed for being on television, where the first time I was asked uh, by a newspaper, I, you know, I just said it. And and then similarly with mental health, disclosed that too. Um and, you know, <laughs> we'll continue getting cancer or whatever. And I can understand why people would say, he's just a big show-off. He just likes to talk about himself. And I'm certainly not suggesting that it's out of some charitable instinct to make the world a better place. But I think it does me good not to feel stigmatised because stigma is a terrible thing, but self-stigma is usually the first hurdle we have to get over. And and I, I can have had it about all kinds of things. Being Jewish, for example, it's not it's not that I would ever be ashamed of being Jewish, but it's not relevant to me because it's not religion, but it is relevant to me because of the history of what's happened to the Jews and and, and to what happened to my own family. So in that sense, it's something I do not want mm. ever to feel like, ah, 
it's just who cares we're all citizens of the world you know i can see why someone who's white doesn't go on about being caucasian because you know it's <laughs> but the, the the slightly over a half of me that's jewish feels like that's something i have to be aware of and similarly my sexuality um my the, the bipolar disorder that I have, things like that, or even the, even other rare and sillier conditions like prosopagnosia, which I, no one ever believes I have, but I, I don't recognise faces very well at all. It's not as bad as some people have it. Brad Pitt famously came out about his prosopagnosia. He, and, and, of course, for the same reason that you, you want everyone to know so that they understand you're not being rude when you blank them in the street. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. You just assume when people go, hi, Stephen, they think, do they know me because I'm on television or do they know me because they know me? And you just have to develop a kind of hi sort of thing that can cover both. You know, So there are these things that, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever it is, as I say, the prostate cancer, whatever it might be, one wants to be able to disclose that for one's own sake. So I'm not embarrassed about myself. But also, yes, there is, you do feel that the world shouldn't ever be embarrassed or look down or want to hide some of these conditions, states of mind, disorders, mm. uh, you know, natures, whatever, all these this different range of things that make us separate from a supposed norm. The the word normative has become a bit of a sort of jargon word about, you know, but, but you know, there is a, a feeling that any veering away from that norm uh, now can be expressed more happily. And I'm, I'm all for that. But when it comes to television programs, yes, I, I, I think sometimes you, you get something like It's a Sin, which is a, you know, a magnificent piece of writing which quite deliberately wants yeah. to open up that whole world and you know, f- have the full discussion that we never really had at the time and, and to memorialise, um, to be a memorial and a name, as the phrase has it in the Holocaust mm. Memorial. And, 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 and things like Heartstoppers. I mean, yeah, when I saw that script and was asked to do it, I thought, my God. If I had seen that when I was 13, 14, 15, if I had had that available to yeah. me, what a difference that would have made in my life. What an unbelievable difference yeah. it would have made. So I'm obviously thrilled to do that. And I've just, I did, I finished a work on a, a Netflix series, um, which has, and this really is its title, unless Netflix changes it before transmission, The Fuck It Bucket, uh, <laughs> which is a, a remarkable, written by a very young, uh, Ripley Parker, her name is, and 21 years old when she wrote it. I think she's just 22 now. It's an extraordinary thing. And it, 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 it deals with the mental health problems that come from from a body dysmorphia that leads to, to anorexia and other such things. That, and it's part of her experience. And, and uh, she's written an amazing script. I play a clinician who looks after her from time to time in it. And um, so, but I don't, go out of my way only to do things like that. You know, I really enjoyed uh, The Sandman, for example, which uh, is, uh, yeah. in that sense, is not a, uh, doesn't speak to that sort of thing. It's not an issue. It's something else, yeah. a work of the imagination and a remarkable world. So it's nice to have the variation, but I know it does give special pleasure to, yeah, to, you know, to 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 think that maybe someone can watch that and, feel vindicated and released a little 
Let's talk about you getting into television. So before we do that, let's let's give it some context. So I spoke to you at the BFI and Radio Times Television where you won an honorary award and people can watch the conversation with Alan Yentob on BBC4. Um, you told me at the time of your mischievousness of your teenage <laughs> years, ending up in prison for stealing and using credit cards. Um, but then behind bars, you kind of, it ignited this thought in your head about a change that you wanted to make and you had this desire to go to Cambridge. And if we think about it, you know, in on reflection, perhaps Cambridge is, is the place where you, you, well, I mean, it definitely is. It's where you meet Hugh Laurie and eventually, you know, literally, you know, at the time, the impact that that would have on your life probably. But talk to me about how kind of Footlights and Cambridge propelled you into this to be ready to pursue a career in television? Well, I didn't want to go to Cambridge because it had the footlights. I wanted to go for much, much more pretentious reasons because of E.M. Forster and Bertrand Russell and the Bloomsbury movement and the the great sort of, uh, the that sort of philosophy of the uh, human relations and uh, humanism and, and so on, a, gen, a, a sort of quite gentle humanism, if you like. I, and I love the rigour of the idea of the rigour of the place and reading literature and after such a terrible, um, screwed up uh, adolescence, I, I suppose I felt that I could just grow tweed quietly and maybe become an academic. Um, but I knew about the footlights because I loved Monty Python and uh, I'd heard records of Jonathan Miller and Peter Cook and, and the Beyond the Fringe group, so I knew about them. Uh, and I knew that it was a great nursery for, for a particular kind of humour. Uh, and I thought I'd go and watch them and, you know, maybe even write a monologue or a sketch, perhaps, if that worked out. So I arrived and, yeah, I threw myself into a little bit of the academic side, went to the odd seminar, and I found myself sitting next to this uh, remarkable woman uh, who shaved her head. Uh, and I found that hilarious. And she wore a woolly cap and we would walk down from down Sidgwick, a road in Cambridge where the lecture theatres were down towards the centre and I would whip off her woolly cap and cyclists would wobble and <laughs> drive into trees and things like that because they'd be so startled at this bald woman. And her name was Emma Thompson and I saw her in plays and she was so astonishingly good that I thought, well, this, this is ridiculous if that's the standard. Mind you, I could see that no one else was as good as she was, <laughs> as you can see today, frankly. And... And she yes. said to me, oh, you should audition. You'd be fine. You'd enjoy it. And I said, no, I, I, I mean, but so I started to in my second term and really got the buck. Because I was tall and had a deep voice, I was nearly always cast as, <laughs> as a king and a, a parent. Because don't forget, everybody in the plays was in like 18, 19, 20, the undergraduate age, obviously, because that's what the drama was at Cambridge. It wasn't academic drama. You couldn't get a degree in it. It was all extracurricular. So uh, it was like a fun hobby. Uh, and I was always the warty old king. Oh, bless you all, you know, sort of come on. Like, sometimes it was a good role. Sometimes it was just, you know, just a, you know, a little farty old thing. But, but uh, then I started to play more and more. I did about eight plays in my second term. And then we went to Edinburgh. And, uh, and then in my second year, I got even more into the drama. And I was on the committee of dozens of different drama 
clubs in, within Cambridge, uh, went to Edinburgh, wrote a play which won an award, and, and that was um, a comedy. It's called Latin. Um, and Emma came to see it, and uh, the next term was the beginning of my third year, and she came to my rooms and said, do you remember I introduced you to someone when we, I came to see your play Latin? And I said, uh, not particularly. I said, well, anyway, I think you should meet him again because he's now president of the Footlights. I said, the Footlights? He said, yeah. And uh, everyone, you know, from the last two years who was in the Footlights has kind of gone. There's just me and him uh, who've ever been in the Footlights before. And he needs someone to write with. And he saw your play and really liked it and thinks maybe you and he could write together. I said, okay, uh, what's his name? She said, Hugh Laurie. He's at Selwyn College. And she said, okay. Well, she said, let's go and see him. So we walked, I was at Queen's College, my career. So we walked up to Selwyn, knocked on his door, and it swung open. And he was sitting on a bed with a guitar. And he went, hello. And I said, hello. And there was his girlfriend, Katie, making some coffee. And she said, hello, and offered us some coffee. And Hugh said, um, I've been writing this song. And he started to, to sing. And he had a verse, and so it stops there. So I sat down next to him and uh, suggested a line for the next verse. And he went, oh, okay. And then we did a second. And anyway, we sort of finished the song. And then he picked up a pen and paper pad and said, you know, we've been thinking of writing this. And and we started writing a sketch and talking. And and Emma and Katie were staring at us because we'd not really said anything to each other other than talking about the song and the sketch. We'd just gone straight into it. It was the most extraordinary thing for me. It was like love at first sight in a, in a not even in a, a, certainly not an erotic way or a platonic way exactly, but in a comic way. It was a comic bang, just to this ma magnet, just poof. We just fitted. And we, we, we knew without even having to explain it that we had the same sense of humour, which in late adolescence means more than anything, what you don't find funny. You know, because late adolescents are always finding things total shit. Oh, that's just, hate that. Don't you hate that? Oh, that. Oh, God, I hate that. And and it's, we just, we all hate, we hated the same things. And that's that's a very good platform in late adolescence, I think. So so that's how that began. And we, we had a, the, our last year to write um, a pantomime um and uh, a late night review show in the Lent term, the following term, and then in the May term, the final term, uh, doing the Footlight Show at the Arts Theatre, then going up to Edinburgh, <clears throat> where there was this new award called the Perrier Award. Um, and uh, it was going to be given to the best comedy show on the fringe. And we had heard that the person, Nika Burns and some of the other people who had instigated the award, one of the first things they had said is, well, it's not going to the Cambridge Footlights, you can be sure of that, because there was a tradition of Cambridge Footlights going to Edinburgh ever since the Beyond the Fringe days and getting big audiences and getting press attention. Mm. Uh, so we knew we were out of the running. Anyway, we were doing our show and it was going really well, I have to say. And one night we were taking our bow and the audience suddenly went, kind of crazy as we were bowing. It was more than just uh, an ovation for what we were doing. And I looked round, and there at the back of the stage, carrying something like a sort of, couldn't quite work out what it was, was a very familiar figure who had become famous over the last year and a half because of a programme called Not the Nine O'Clock News. It was Rowan Atkinson. And he um, came on, walked on stage and put his hand up. Um, uh, 
um, excuse me. And <laughs> everybody went quiet. He said, it's my enormous pleasure to tell this troop of very funny people that they have been awarded the Perrier Award for their show. And he awarded us the Perrier Award on stage. And it was like, wow, because that involved a performance in London. Um, and then the next night, a man called Dennis Maine Wilson appeared in our dressing room afterwards. Famous name. My parents instantly knew the name because after the Goon Show or Hancock, you would often hear on the radio, produced by Dennis Maine Wilson. He was a vet, and he was the first producer till death is to part. And I mean, he was immense, he was a legendary figure at the BBC. And he came around and said, I want to do your program on television. I want to do your review on television. He said, What? A student review? Yes, we're going to have it on BBC Two. It's very good. We'd like to do it. So it was like, What the hell? And then this man turned up to the stage door as well in, a, in his you know, Rolls-Royce, um, with an old Etonian tie, said, ah, my name is Richard Armitage and I run an agency and I'd like you to be clients if you're interested in a career in this show business. And he was already Rowan Atkinson's agent and David Frost, he'd been John Cleese's agent. He was, uh, you know, he, and, uh, and he'd already hired, actually, in her second year, uh, uh, Emma. And, and we're all still with the same agency. It's changed its name and it's different personnel, but we've never moved from it since. Uh, because it's just, it, it, and then came to us some ITV people and said, um, we'd like you to do a series for us at ITV. We're going to introduce uh, you and maybe well, there are a couple of other people we've got our eye on. One's just graduated from art school in Scotland. His name is Robbie Coltrane. And the other's graduated from Manchester University. His name is Ben Elton. We'd like you all to do a show together. So we all met in London. And um, and the, the, the runner, the kind of assistant, the young assistant, was called John Plowman. And he, he, he became our friend later, much later, the head of comedy at BBC. He gave the world the office and Ab Fab. And, I mean, and he produced our Fran Laurie show. He was an amazing figure. So, I mean, that was... And then an Australian fellow came and said, I'd like to tour you around Australia. So, like, this one week in Edinburgh, we were given... Our show was... We were told it was to be on BBC television, that we were to do a series for ITV with these two other people, uh, that we were going to tour Australia, and the um, Perrier Prize would give us a, a week performing in London as well. So it was, I mean, it wasn't even a dream come true, because who would dare dream that? It was just, uh, I'll say it, our show was very good, and I'll say it, we were very lucky <laughs> to be at a time when people weren't embarrassed to go to a lot of old Cambridge people and say, we'll get to give you a job. Now they go, look, <laughs> come on, <laughs> this, this world is over. So, you know, I can understand anyone listening to this would have every reason to despise me <laughs> and to despise the world in which could have singled me and Hugh and Emma and, and Tony Slattery, who was with us as well, and Paul Shearer and Penny Dwyer, who were, uh, um, singled us out for such, uh, you know, good fortune. But there has been Footlight shows every year before that, and they hadn't been singled out. So, you know, I think we, we did have a pretty magically good show. It, it, was, it was original. Mm. It, people said, God, we've never seen anything like that before. There was a, a level of... 
wordplay and social observation and other such things that, that wasn't the same as what had gone before, perhaps. It, it certainly wasn't alternative comedy, in, in, which was developing around the same time. But it was, you know. And then when we did the show with Ben Elton and Robbie Coltrane, uh, uh, we were in Manchester and Ben was simultaneously writing with Rick Mail and Lisa Mayer a show called The Young Ones. And by the second series, I'd had this idea about us going on as, as a snobby um, Oxbridge College uh, sort of uh, <laughs> uh, university challenge team, and that worked very well. Uh, and, and there was a kind of acting out uh, on that show of the division between old-school Oxbridge graduate humour with us public school tall, knobby you know, ghastly people and the free, fabulous, yeah, Viv and, and Rick. Uh, oh, no, I just sat on something really horrible. What? My bottom. Oh, that's such a good <laughs> oh, <thank impression>. <laughs> uh, But, um, you know, so we absolutely just lucked in the time. The early 80s was a heck of a time. To, to, to do that. The doors were opening to new kinds of comedy and variety, the, mm. you know, the Benny Hills and the Little and Large and the Eric Morecambe and Wise and Tommy Cooper, much yeah. as I adored them. Um, they were beginning, you know, to fade out as being the primary source of... And as we know, the, the, um, now prime time is, uh, is, is very different, um, and, and it was through the 80s and 90s. Yeah. So... That's the story of the good luck. And then I got to meet John Lloyd and and carried on friendship with Rowan. Uh, we wrote together and I was best man for his wedding. And, and the first series of Blackadder was going on while we were doing our ITV series. And the first series of Blackadder, if you remember, was, I mean, it's t- now it's wonderful. People enjoy watching. It's got Brian Blessed, and all that sort of stuff. Peter Cook. It's, it's amazing. Uh, but it was filmed. Uh, so single camera filming uh, on locations. Uh, John Lloyd always said that the producer mm. that it was the show that that uh, looked a million dollars, but unfortunately cost two million dollars. <laughs> and the BBC didn't <laughs> want to do it again um, because it was too expensive, and they felt it wasn't that great a show. But Richard Curtis and Rowan, who had written the first episode, they were they were convinced there was something there. And I was remember being in in the office with Richard Armitage, this agent I told you about, was also Rowan's agent, and he kind of manufactured the 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 deal because um, Rowan said, "Well, what, 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 I don't want to write it anymore. Why, do, why doesn't Richard write it? But maybe with someone like Ben Elton." And Ben brilliantly said, "Yes." I'd love to to do a second series of Blackadder, but I think it should be a, a sitcom, not not a filmed event. I think it should be done in front of an audience, multi-camera, like Terry and June is done or, or Faulty Towers was done or whatever, in that way with a live audience, as it were. Um, and apart from anything else, of course, that meant it was much cheaper. So the BBC said, all right, we'll do it. And... I developed what I call my tennis theory of comedy from that, which is that it doesn't matter in a game of tennis how athletic and fantastic the sweeps of the arm and the bounds from court are if you can't see the ball. 
It's meaningless. It just becomes thrashing about. And it's the same in comedy. It doesn't matter how good the production values are, how wonderful the, 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 the scenes and the, the, the composition of shots and the, you know, the extras and the gleaming armor. If you can't see the ball, it's not funny. You just, you lose where to look. And so in the second series where I played Lord Melchard, one of the sort of Queen's, I don't know what you call him, Chamberlain or something like that. We were, the throne room where the Queen was, there was Nursie, Queenie and me. It, I mean, a public lavatory was twice the size. It was tiny, but you just have one camera looking at us there and then, you know, another couple getting side shots. But it, it worked. And similarly with Blackadder's Room, and suddenly the, the series became successful, which was thrilling. And, and, and it was such a vindication of yeah. Ben's uh, belief in the sitcom, which he's carried all the way through to his upstart crow, of course. And with those, you know, you, you really rose to fame in the 80s. Mm. You know, I'm sure you were getting recognised in the street. You had, um, you know, you were one half of the comedy act, Fry and Laurie. You had a bit of Fry and Laurie, Jeeves yeah, and Mister, Blackadder. What was that like, A, the kind of fame that would have accrued, but also what was it like seeing yourself back on television? Did, do you watch yourself? Are you are you a kind of free watcher or do you find it very awkward? I find it fantastically awkward and I just <laughs> don't watch myself. I don't watch myself in um, movies. I mean, there are exceptions. If, if, if it's something very good, I'll watch it despite me being in mm. it. So I did like a American TV series last year called The Dropout, which was um, Amanda Seyfried, who, who, who won a, a, an Emmy for her performance. And it, it, I so in, enjoyed the scripts and m my part, which was in like episodes three, four, five, and six or something. So I could watch the beginning and then it, try not to pay too much attention to myself and just watch it. Um, but things like QI that I used to do, I never watched that back. Um, I think it's, well, what I often say to people is, do you like the sound of yourself on voicemail, answer phones? And everybody goes, I hate it. I said, well, magnified <laughs> up to your appearance as well as your voice. Uh, do you like seeing yourself in wedding videos? No. Well, it, it doesn't change when you're a professional actor. You still have that primal kind of uh, yuck feeling when you see yourself because when you think about it it's very unnatural it's there was a period when we were able to mm. see our reflections in water and polished metals um uh, but that was in real time what you know we lifted an arm and the reflection lifted its arm we were we controlled our yeah. image in other words because it was mm. yeah but the moment we could record on film and then tape and now you know pixels uh, we now have images of ourselves that are not within our control. So it's very noticeable that people, when they see themselves uh, like that, they actually tell themselves, stop it. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, because you can't do, you can't control that image. It's, it has a kind of weird autonomy. And that's freakish, mm. you know, psychically does weird things to one, which is possibly why so many performers are, close to unhinged a lot of the time, possibly. What piece of work that you have either starred in, written, television work, are you most proud of? Gosh. Um, well, I mean, obviously, in film terms, playing Oscar Wilde was a heck of a, a thing. I'm fully aware that, you know, 
not often going to be asked to play the lead in something. Um, and so that was a heck of a responsibility because it meant so much to me. Uh, over the years, uh, Wild had you know, been a very important part of my life, a kind of emotional and spiritual, intellectual godfather or uncle and uh, or brother even. And um, so that was the responsibility and, and and in a smaller way, but 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 very potently, um, the, the Jeeves and Worcester too, because I loved P.G. Woodhouse when I was a child. I read all his books. I collected them. I wrote to him when I was, I don't know, 12, I think, and got a letter back and a signed photograph, which I kept in the trailer whenever we were shooting the Woodhouse. Um, and so those were very, you know, they, they kind of mattered. But perhaps... Um, just because I was so thrilled with the impact, I would say the the, the two part documentary I made about about bipolar disorder, the secret life of the manic depressive, mm. and 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 it really was before mental health had become part of what we now call the national conversation, yeah. and and it did its little part to help that conversation get going. I think I got an enormous amount of mail, <clears throat> not just from people who themselves or who had close uh, family or, or friends or lovers uh, who had mental health problems, but from from doctors, from GPs. GPs saying, you know, I've had so many people presenting to me and they tell me about their depression, but I've never stopped to ask them about their mania. And and because, of course, bipolar disorder is both. It's not, And, and a lot of doctors had just been yeah. treating people for depression when they needed a, 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 a very different kind of approach. So... And that, and I continue to get people talking to me about that. So I think, I think one of the things is yeah. that the most reaction I get to things proves that there is a huge audience out there who want to be intellectually yeah. and emotionally tickled with things uh, of, that are slightly above the average in terms of not seriousness, but well, for, for example, it's that program and a debate I did on religion with Christopher Hitchens on on the Catholic Church yeah. are probably two of the things I get most people talking about because because yeah. their belief or non-belief in a creative and a God the devotion or non-devotion to the enormous power of the church is something incredibly important to yeah. a lot of people it matters and it's not usually talked about we're slightly embarrassed about it we don't want Certainly, we don't want the kind of TV of evangelical God talk, but nor do we want people to go on about how they don't believe in God. It's kind of rude to keep just to try and tell people who are religious that they're fools, because that's, I have no argument with the individually devout and pious person, their own journey towards what they regard as their truth and their faith and all the rest of it, however you express it these days. But, but you know, you can certainly argue about institutions, corrupt institutions like the, this church or that church. But it's the fact that there isn't any room for that kind of thing on TV anymore. There are pockets of it on YouTube and elsewhere. But sometimes you touch mm. an, a nerve uh, uh, in lots of different countries just by talking about your attitude to God or why you don't believe in God or why you think if there were a God, that God would clearly not be the benevolent creature that is often discussed. And and so that yeah. pleases me. But it also worries me that there isn't this space on television to have these kinds of conversation. And, and that's a shame. 
Uh, and you know there aren't many outlets for it. BBC Four is going, I believe. Is that right? Which is terribly sad news. Um, so I don't know where else there would be any kind of outlet. Radio. Radio, yeah, and podcasts, of course. But yeah, and all the BBC radio people are leaving to <laughs> to take the broadcast, the, the podcast yeah. chilling, and you can't blame them. And uh, Jane Garvey and uh, and no. um, um, uh, Glover. I mean, yeah, they're, they're going, aren't they? Fee Glover, I mean, yes. Yeah, Fee Glover. Yeah. I have something now which feels like a very strange move, but the last time we talked, you told me about how a man once approached you and he said he went to bed with you every <laughs> night. And that was obviously a very bad choice <laughs> of phrasing. But many of us do go to sleep listening to you um, because you voice the Harry Potter books. And I wanted to ask, you know, that's, it's obviously got a massive fandom globally. Um, you have a very wonderful, soothing <laughs> voice. What was it like to kind of enter the world and keep it going and, and kind of bring it to a new audience and well, it, keep that flame it alive? It became remarkable, but it started as an ordinary gig because when I did the first one, she'd only written one book and it wasn't worthy of newspaper coverage. Uh, the average person in the street had never heard of this boy wizard called Harry Potter. Um, they were successful. She'd won the Smarty Prize for children's fiction. Bloomsbury were incredibly pleased with how well the book had sold, and they wanted to do an audiobook of it. And she had said that she was very happy that I would be the one to do it because she she was a fan of Fry and Laurie, in fact. And uh, she also said that she was determined that because at the time there was this was before audiobooks exploded as a market, there was a tendency to um, to condense them or abridge them, um, really just to reduce the number of cassettes. And that's what we're talking about: tape cassettes, um, yes. a huge number of tape cassettes. You, you know just cart them around, have them in your car for a long book. So a lot of times they were condensed. She said she didn't want her books condensed. She imagined children listening to the audiobook while reading it as well, following with their finger along the line and how it would help with their reading. And she didn't want any shortening of it, which would confuse them. So it had to be word for word as she wrote. And I was fine with that. So we you know, read the first one and she was there for a lot of the recordings. I think it took a day and a half, so it wasn't, um, you know, it was in Soho. We we had lunch uh, it, it, for the two days at the French house in Dean Street and it was very pleasant. And uh, she says, I said it like this, I hate to think it's true. Um, when we parted on the second day and I said, I have to say, I really enjoyed reading that book. I think it's fabulous. And and I hope the, this audio version does really well. She said, well, as a matter of fact, I've already finished a second book and there may be more. And I, she says, I pointed to her and said, good for you. <laughs> I'm sure I wasn't that condescending. But anyway, in due course, um, I read the second one. And by the time of the third pretty much everybody was beginning to know the name Harry Potter. And mm. they were bringing out editions with adult covers for, for grown-ups to read them on the train so they didn't look like children's books. And people were saying, these are the books that, that 
you know, parents read to their children and then they sit on the top of the stairs after their children have fallen asleep and carry on reading because they, they're caught up in it themselves. And so she started yeah. then, uh, I think it was probably between the second one and the third, the third was The Prisoner of Azkaban, wasn't it? Maybe it was the third one. Yes. And she went to America for the first time, where Scholastic, her publishers there, uh, gave her a you know, book tour, author tour. And she told me some of the stories there, which were astonishing about the, the lines of people uh, out in the street waiting to be signed and how yeah. many of them were were dressed up as Hermione and Harry with scars on their foreheads and there were three or four with gold frames around them being the fat lady in the, you know, the portrait who lets you in uh, into the dormitories at night kind of thing. So all this, you know, she suddenly realised that this was not normal, that this this didn't have, even successful children's books mm. didn't have this level of attention. And, and so by the fourth yeah. one, I was having to go into the Bloomsbury offices to read the new book under armed guard because we were starting to get stories about people betting on the outcome and the attempt of people to infiltrate and to, you know, to, to uh, get to the manuscript at the printer's uh, before anybody else, so they could you know lay a bet on who was going to die or marry somebody or whatever it was. So it just got, and then you just got for the next four or five books. Whenever there was a new one, it was the, the main story on the TV news. You would see children queuing yeah. outside W. H. Smiths, and you'd see the special events. There's one I was involved with where we took a train from King's Cross with some children, and I read to them. Another one in the Albert Hall where I did some reading, and Joe did. Joe Rowling did some reading, and um, and it was marvelous then to get involved with what turned out to be really the greatest literary phenomenon since Dickens. And and um, so it was a privilege really to be involved. There's the the story that tickles people was that on the, it was either in the second or third one, <clears throat> there was a phrase. And when you're doing an audio book, you know, you, sometimes you can go five pages without making a mistake. You can do really fast, loud, complicated, you know, Quidditch match commentary or something. And then the, the quaffle goes to, you know, yeah. and you think, wow, I really, really, you know, I nailed that. And then you'll hit a phrase, a simple, innocent phrase that for some reason your tongue trips over and you can never get out. And this one was... Harry pocketed it. See, I've done it again. Pocketed it, it. I keep putting in an extra syllable. Harry pocketed. I can say pocketed and I can say it. But that pocketed is it, it. Pocketed yeah, it. Harry pocketed it, it. And um, so I remember <laughs> I tried it. We all started laughing and the engineer was laughing and Joe wasn't in that day. So I called her up and said, uh, I can't say Harry pocketed. <laughs> Pocket, you know the phrase, pocketed. <laughs> It, I can't say it. I said, pocketed so I said to her, would it be all right if I changed it to Harry put it in his pocket, which I can say easily? And she said, no. And so <laughs> I eventually got it. And then every subsequent book had the phrase, Harry pocketed it somewhere, just as a little trap for me. Oh, so that was, that was her little, little joke. Yeah, for you. Just to make me, <laughs> keep me on my toes. So that was fun. But no, oh, it was it was an honour to be involved. With. It's been it was remarkable to watch a whole generation of children, you know, growing up. 
with, with that book as one of the most important and exciting things being in their lives, a publication of a new one once every year and a bit. Yes, goodness. It was it was phenomenal. You're that generation exactly, aren't you? Yes, I'm the biggest fan and um, I do go to sleep every evening listen to it and my boyfriend will murder me for saying this, but <laughs> for my birthday this year, he did an audio book for me, the entirety of the first How Harry fantastic. And I... How wonderful. But unlike you, he didn't have the audio team to cut any edits, so he'd have to start from the beginning of the chapter oh, if he messed no. it up. Oh, no. What a... Uh, well, that's <laughs> noble. That well, that a is gem. a gift beyond rubies. Fantastic. Now I'm going to ask you some quick questions. I'll give you an, an yeah. either or, and then just say which one you prefer. So, running commentary or silent watching? <sighs> running commentary. I mean, sometimes it's a terrible commentator, but actually I do like I do like to have a guide and friend. What's your guilty pleasure on television? Well, now, let me see. Pointless. <laughs> I love that. I too. love pointless. And uh I'll, I'm getting used to the fact that Richard Osman is no longer the pointless friend. Um they've had a good one, the first one, Sally something, I think her name is. She's been, you know, but it does take a, get, a bit of getting used to. I like to think I discovered the repair shop as well, which is to say, very early on, I tweeted, this is the best programme in the history of television, which is possibly an exaggeration. But otherwise, Sundays, <laughs> I have to go to, there's a Channel 5 extra channel called 5 Extra or something like that, and it's not quite 5 Extra, but which shows Columbo's on Sundays, and Columbo is my cushion. I mean, it is still the best detective show ever made, and it's still brilliant in how it's written, structured, performed, directed. It's just great. Snack of choice while watching TV. Uh, dried mango. Isn't that weird? That is a bit I, strange. You've pulled a real face there. <laughs> I, I've trained myself to make it dried mango because otherwise it would be something carb, you know, carbohydrate heavy like crisps or pretzels or twiglets or something. And and I, they just oh, they fill me up and, and make me slow down. So I, I try and stick to fruit. It's pathetic. But dried mango is quite good because you can chew on it. It's like a jerky. You can't, you know, the act of chewing tells your stomach that you're full before you've even swallowed it. So it's, it's, you know, someone who fights their weight all the time like me, it's a good thing. Drink of choice? Uh, oat milk. But full, full creamy oat milk, not the, nowadays you can get it like sort of semi-skimmed as it were. Would you ever have a TV dinner? Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, these days you call in a good pizza or something. Um, you know, pizza's good because you can handle it. Uh, you get, you know, curry mm. and things you have to have around a table, to be honest. It's too much. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to play you three theme tunes. <laughs> this is number one. Ah, oh, Faulty Towers. Uh, that was too easy, wasn't it? Flowery twats. You know, you know, you remember having each... each um, <laughs> Uh, farty owls. Remember how in each episode the sign in front of the hotel has been, you know, exactly has been changed. You got that in three seconds. <laughs> okay, this one might be a bit more difficult.
it's 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 got a historical feel to it. I, I, I can't place it, I'm afraid. I'll give you a clue. Um, yeah. I chose it. It's it's relatively recent, as in the last ten years. Um, but I thought it would kind of remind you of your childhood, but I don't know why. Ooh. It's kind of how I imagined your house. Oh, to be is it Downton? Up. Yes. I don't watch Downton, so I've never really heard it. I, 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 it's one. It, it's not quite as bad as Strictly, but it also slightly embarrasses me having people dress up like that. I don't know why, because I did Jeeves <laughs> and Worcester, and we did quite a lot of Jeeves and Worcester in the same location, Highclere, uh, where they shoot Downton. We did. We did. Um, oh, at least three, three or four episodes of uh, of, of of Jeeves. Um, so that was Downton, was it? It's not Detective, so I don't really watch it. <laughs> it's not Detective. If I'd known before, I would have chosen accordingly. This is number three. <laughs> Monty Python, <laughs> the Liberty Bell, the Liberty that. Bell by John Philip Sousa. Yeah. Yeah, it's fabulous. I love that. And of course, you have to have the at the end. Yes, I mean, I actually have playlists of TV shows from the seventies and eighties. It's it's really, you know, um, Primrose. Do you know we had a prime minister called Primrose? Most people don't know that we did have a prime minister whose name was Primrose. He's better known as the Earl uh, of Rosebery, but his surname was Primrose. Um, and he was a strange, sentimental fool. When, when he died, supposedly he insisted on having the Eaton Boating song playing on a 78 wind-up gramophone as he died to remind him of his childhood. And I would probably have something like Animal Magic or Top of the Form, their theme tunes, or, or Blue Peter, or, or something like that, or Man in oh. a Suitcase or Man from Uncle. Um, those sort of programs. I loved those. There was um, ITC, um, which was Monty Berman and Dennis Spooner. Uh, Lou Grade, uh, I think, was one of the, you know, sort of the money behind it. They made things like The Avengers, all the things beginning with The, The Protectors, yeah. you know, The Persuaders. The, the Persuaders. Persuaders, yeah. Um, and a Man in a Suitcase, The Baron was a, a short-lived one, which was quite fun. Uh, and my favourite uh, when I was about eight or nine was The Champions, which I loved, where they had uh, three people who had special powers. And I used to love that theme tune as well. I've got that. I've got a copy of that somewhere. So, yeah, um, that kind of stuff was just wonderful. That's yeah, it was. Listening. It was great. Well, it's lovely, isn't it? Because if there's a really good theme tune, even if you hear it years later, like there's ones from my childhood that if I listen to, it takes me right back and I know That's exactly right. what it looks yeah, like you, and who the characters were. Especially the ones with songs, the American ones with singing, like, it's the Flintstones yes. uh, or, or Scooby-Dooby-Doo, <laughs> where are you? We've got, <laughs> so we've got some work good. to do now. Um, and uh, um, uh, what, oh, the, oh, Top Cat, the, you know, that was a good song, wasn't it? Top yes. Cat. The most of his and close Pink friends Panther. call him TC Pink Panther. That was the Mantavan, um, Mancini uh, tune. Was wonderful. Yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of good ones like that. 
a lot of good ones. I used to love banana splits as well. That was a favourite. One banana, two banana, three banana, four. La, 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 la. Sorry, I just, it's pathetic. It's like going on <laughs> about the sweets that you had. Oh, well, there were spangles and oh, there were the <laughs> cigarette ones that were, you know, rolling tobacco. Oh, yes. Coconut rolling to, tobacco yes. and, uh, and uh, little hard white candy cigarettes that you could pretend to smoke. Yes, Pre- that everyone would smoke and, and at school. As, you know, of course, before. it's preparing you because the, the thing that really did it was, was the, uh, the sherbet fountains. You know, you'd have a licorice tube and you could suck up mm. this white powder which was preparing you for your later uh, addictions in, <laughs> in your wicked adulthood where sucking up white powder through a tube might have become uh, uh, a bad a bad period of one's life for example so it's yeah it's all about addiction it's all about the fact that children used to be sent up chimneys to work they were whipped and beaten they had latin and greek pushed into their skulls. They were working down coal mines and and, and factories and, and mills. Um, and the idea that they should have their own life was just not considered, you know, anything other than a fantasy. Then slowly, people like Lewis Carroll began to romanticise childhood. But still, children were mm. to be seen and not heard. But after the Second World War, my generation, I think, the first... Suddenly we had television made for us, comestibles that like sweets that we could just, I mean, obviously they'd always existed before, but they were, they were behind the assistant in big jars on shelves that you couldn't reach. You had to order them, but now you could grab handfuls of them and they belonged to you. They were made for you. They had cards in them. The bubblegum had Beatles cards in them. You know, you could collect pictures of your favourite Beatle. So that everything, television and music, and then, as I say, things like, you know, Top of the Pops, were made for us, and a whole generation, my generation, was basically trained to be addicted to popular culture, sugar and powders and and instant gratification became our right. And that has been the nature of our society ever since, and I'm as as part of that as, as anybody else. And my dear friend who was a, a symbol of that because she was a star of one of the absolute epicenters of that culture, Star Wars, Carrie Fisher. She um, once said the trouble with instant gratification is it isn't fucking soon enough. (laughs) You know, and and that she understood exactly that. And she had the problems with all of that, the drugs and the eating and the sugar and the, uh, you know, the, the grabbing of, of you know experience that was sweet and a quick rush, an instant rush. The idea of delayed gratification became impossible, and television was instant gratification. It was what you wanted, and and it was in your face and mm. in your ears, and it had toys and color and everything that was thrilling, and it was yours by right, and that's been the case for the young ever since, and now. The weird thing is, as our generation has grown, we've stayed at the same level. So adults now wear children's leisure clothing, sports caps like baseball caps and and, and hoodies and tracksuit bottoms and trainers, things that were made for children and playwear, essentially. You see adults aged my age, in their 60s, in hotels wearing playwear and having a paper cup with a straw in it, having... A milkshake. 
there's a grown-up. He's having a milkshake. And he's <laughs> going to the cinema, not with his children, with his friends, to watch Thor, Love and Thunder, or, or you know, a, a comic book film. And and the food he's eating is, is a Beyond Burger or a mushed-up, you know, Shake Shack or something, which is sort of, it's, it's fine for a snack, but it's not grown-up food, you know. And... And we don't live in a grown-up culture. We're infantilized, um, and mm. I'm as guilty as that as anybody else. You know, I, I. But part of me also feels, hang on, this can't be right. You know, even Saint Paul, not someone I admire enormously, but in his famous thirteenth letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, "When I was a child, I spoke as a child, and I, you know, played as a child, and, and mm. but when I became a man, I put away all childish things." We no longer put away all childish things. Uh, and who's to say we're wrong? You know, a lot of people listening would go, good thing too. But I'm sure we're all familiar with the difference between childish and childlike. We want to be childlike. Yes. Childlike in our openness to experience and our joy and, you know, the, 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 the small distance we have to travel between joy and tears is, is one of the lovely things about children. But childishness stamping our feet, demanding things, and not understanding the gap between what we want and what we can have, that isn't perhaps so healthy. I don't know. I've turned in. Sorry, I'm no. becoming a preacher now. Not at all. But that's why I think we turn to those kind of television shows. I watch Mr Bean yeah. when I feel sad. Mm. I watch Mr Bean. Mm. And that's it's engaging in that childishness. It's that laughing that feels childishness. It's a... A safety and a security Absolutely in that. Absolutely right. I, I think that's enormous sense. And me, it's you know, uh, either Laurel and Hardy or it's something that isn't funny, but it's just so cozy or comforting. Yeah, Joan Hickson's Miss Marple, for example. I could watch all of those. I know them all almost, I would say, word for word. Um, and they are faultless and brilliant uh, and they give me joy. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for going through your TV habits with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a joy for me as well. You've made a, an old man very happy. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed our conversation with Stephen, why not tune in to BBC4 this week on Monday the 24th of October at 9pm or head to iPlayer to watch Stephen being interviewed by Alan Yentob at the BFI and Radio Times Television Festival. We have new episodes of View From My Sofa that come out every Tuesday and next week's guest is documentary maker Louis Theroux. Now, before we bring this week's episode to a close, I wanted to thank all of our listeners for their comments and feedback about the new series. We're looking forward to bringing you many more conversations with the stars of our screen as they talk all things telly. Please do write in and tell us which guests you'd like to see on our sofa. What are your favourite TV moments? What shows do you binge? And which do you loathe? We can't wait to hear from you. That's all for this week. If you want to read more interviews with the stars of the small screen, don't forget to pick up your copy of Radio Times, out every Tuesday. Hold up. 